Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20 in the ESV. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Taylor and Jenny Mobley lead uh, the missions team here in the church, also involved in college ministry. And Jenny, at this moment, is in surgery, uh, gallbladder surgery. And uh, I told Taylor yesterday we would pray for her as a church body. We also want to pray for Jeff Combs, lost his father up there in Frigid, North Dakota. Lisa Henshaw's father is still in the hospital. And many of us, um, if you would like to just be included in this prayer, would you raise your hand for a moment? Say, I, I'd, I'd like to be included in this prayer. I, I have a need. There's a situation in my life. Just all over the room. Yeah. Yeah. Would you, if you would, bow on your knees in humility before the Lord? And if you cannot bow, just lean low in your seat, bow before him. Let's kneel together and let's go to the Father. Father, we thank you and praise you that through Jesus we have access uh, to your very presence. Thank you that you are God who hears prayer and answers prayer. You are strong when we are weak. You heal when we are sick. You answer prayers and bring glory to yourself and do good to us. We lift up Jenny at this moment and ask that this surgery will do exactly what it's designed to do. We pray you would put your hands on those hands of of uh, technicians, surgeons, nurses, and we pray for Taylor and his family as they stand in the way. We also pray for Jeff, for your comfort and strength. We pray for Lisa and Kurt and their family as, as they wait and seek you. And for many of us, Lord, who uh, just have needs only you can meet, speak to us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have your seat. Did someone tell me there's a football game tonight? You know, when, um, when Monday night football was taking place, 
we would see on the television two helmets crashing together and a voice that says, are you ready to rumble? And so we're calling this series that we're entering in based on the passage that we heard read out of Ephesians 6, ready to rumble. And someone might say, Sam, are you expecting a church fight here? And my answer is no and yes. Let me show you what I mean. Go ahead and open your Bibles once again to that passage, Ephesians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul wrote 13 letters of the New Testament. And his hope was that when people read those letters, their lives would be transformed as they discovered who Jesus is and who we are in him. And so he writes the book of Ephesians, and many people think this is, this is the highlight of all that he wrote. This is the apex or the sum, that in the book of Romans. And he spends the first half of Ephesians describing who Jesus is and who we are in him. And he wants us to know that if we have come to Christ, we've been adopted into the very family of God. He wants us to know that our sins are totally forgiven. He wants us to know that God handpicked us individually, himself, did the choosing. He wants us to know that we have the Holy Spirit living within us as we walk around and we have access to his very presence. In fact, he says, he, he says, I pray, God, that you would open the eyes of their understanding so that they understand the kind of resources that they have in you, and they know something of the height and depth and the greatness of your love for us. That's the first half of Ephesians. And then the second half, he gets very practical, and he talks about since we are in Christ, since we've been adopted into the family of God, we've been redeemed, we've been forgiven, how do we live? He talks about how we handle our finances. He talks about how we handle relationships that have kind of gone sour, how we talk to one another, how we treat one another. He talks about family life, husbands and wives and parents and children, and he comes to the very end of this letter, and he begins to talk about spiritual warfare. I think here in the West, that's something we kind of give assent to and say, well, I, I guess it's true, but if you are from Africa or Asia or Latin America, or you've lived in those countries, you probably have seen things that uh, you could teach us a great deal about spiritual warfare. And if you've ever tried to serve the Lord uh, using the gifts that you have, you've experienced something of spiritual warfare. So I want us to read once again verses 10 through 13 of Ephesians chapter 6. And then I want to give you four words I want to hang my comments on the teaching this morning. So Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm, stand therefore. And here are the words that I want to hang these, this, this teaching on. Struggle, supernatural, schemes, and stand. Now, you know they'd be alliterated because I'm a preacher, and they all begin with the same word. But 
struggle supernatural schemes and stand. These verses explode what I call a Christian fairy tale, Christian myths, Christian urban legends. You know, sometimes as Christians, we hear things and we repeat them without really thinking, and sometimes we stretch the truth. Sometimes we we exaggerate, and we don't mean to mislead anyone, but sometimes we're so excited about who Jesus is in our life and so long for the people in our life to, to know Him and be forgiven and be redeemed that sometimes we tell half-truths. and Sometimes we mix a little bit of falsehood in with the truth. For example, this is one Christian fairy tale that this text explodes. See if you've heard this one. The Christian life is easy. Is that true? When a sinner recognizes his sinful condition and he bows before God, he repents and trusts in Christ, and God accepts him and forgives him and redeems him. From that moment, he just kind of floats through life. Morning after his conversion, he wakes up, he's a new person. He has an angelic smile. He's full of joy and goodwill all the time. He overflows with love for everyone. His bad habits and attitudes and values, they've all changed instantly. His relationships go from bad to better overnight. Bad habits disappear. He goes from greed to generosity automatically. He never gets angry with anyone. His prejudices all disappear, and he finds the commandments of God easy to keep. True? Doesn't happen that way with most people. In fact, it insults the intelligence of a lot of people, and it creates a lot of guilt and shame in Christians whose lives are not like that, and they've never experienced anything quite like that. Here's another version of that same fairy tale. The longer you live as a Christian, the better you know your Bible, the more time you spend in prayer, and the deeper you are involved in ministry, the easier the Christian life becomes. Is that true? Several years ago, I was having lunch with another pastor, and he was unusually quiet. And I said, what's up? He said this. He said, I've been a pastor, been a Christian many years, been a pastor for many years. I have an earned Ph.D. in theology. I study the Bible in Greek and Hebrew. He says, I tell people about Christ regularly. I have a wonderful wife. I have great kids. I have a good church, and I'm a total failure. He said, I can't lose weight. And he was pretty heavy. He said, I, everyone says it should be easy. I've, I've tried Weight Watchers. I've tried Jenny Craig. I've tried Nutrisystems. I've tried the keto and the paleo and low carb and intermittent fasting. And he said, I just can't slim down. What's wrong with me? And I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, what's wrong with you? Who said it was easy? Did I ever say that? Because if I ever said that, I was wrong. The Bible never says it's easy. Don't get me wrong. Becoming a Christian, that's not a difficult thing to do for many people, to recognize what's obvious to everyone. You're a major screw-up. You've morally failed. You've not even lived up to your own standards, much less the standards of God. And you turn to the only Savior in all of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, and on the basis of His death and resurrection, you ask Him to forgive you and to save you. Becoming a Christian for many people, it's fairly easy. Living the Christian life is not. It's a battle. It's war. In fact, look at verse 12. We struggle. We 
wrestle, mano a mano. And this, this has the idea of two guys down on the ground, down in the dirt, pushing each other's face into the dirt, pummeling each other. It's a, it's a fight to the death. It's life and death. They're, they're desperate. And what Paul says is this, we need more strength than we have. We're in a battle for our minds. We're in a battle for our spirits. We're in a battle for our very life, which is why he starts by saying, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And then in verse 13, he says, there are some days that are just evil days. How many of you have ever experienced an evil day? It's like all hell breaks loose in your life. It's like everything's coming at you at once, and the pressures are increasing, and the problems are complex, and you wonder what in the world is going on. Every day is not an evil day. I mean, God is so good that he restrains the forces of evil. So that, but if we did not have the Lord doing that, every day in our life would be an evil day. But there come those days that are just evil days. And it's a battle. It's a battle. And where the battle takes place is in our families. You see, just before he writes about spiritual warfare he writes about family life. Someone said he goes from home fires to hell fires. I think that's pretty, pretty accurate. He talks about husbands and wives. He talks about children and parents. And that's where the battle takes place many times for us, isn't it? Between husbands and wives, between kids and their parents. And he talks about slaves and masters. And today we would say, well, that could apply to employers and employees. And isn't it on the job or in the classroom where a lot of the battles take place for us? We find ourselves just kind of fighting and we're not sure what in the world is going on. And we have other battles, don't we? Financial shortages and in-laws and red tape and bureaucracy and pain in our bodies and sins that we can't seem to conquer. And if we're honest, most of us would say, there's a battle going on inside of me. I'm a walking civil war. We kind of agree with what Paul said in Romans 7. The things I know to do, I don't do. And the things that I shouldn't do, that's what I do. I'm a walking civil war. We battle fear. Some of us are so fearful at night. We battle discouragement and loss of hope. We battle ourselves. Sometimes I wonder if the parents of newborn children ought to lean down and whisper in their ears and say, Hey, little girl. Hey, little guy. Welcome to the fight. Because one moment you're in the protection of mother's womb, and then you get yanked out into this bright light, and then to show you what life is like, somebody hits you on the bottom. <laughs> life is a battle. It just, why? Why is life sometimes just so hard? Why do we fight so many? Why do we struggle? Why do we wrestle? Here's the second word. It's the word supernatural. He says, there is more going on in your life than you can see or read about in social media. He said, there is a battle going on, and it's unlike any other battle you've ever heard of. He says in verse 12, our battle is not with flesh and blood. People are not our major problem. I want you to turn to a person on one side of you and say, you are not my problem. Go ahead and turn. Then I want you to turn to people on the other side and say, I'm not your problem. <laughs> your problem is not your spouse. Your problem is not your parents. Your problem is not your boss. It's not, your problem is not the Democrats. 
or the Republicans who just won't turn loose of things, won't let things go. Your problem is not your own inner turmoil. That's true. We do struggle with people who are selfish and narcissistic and, and selfish. I mean, even the Apostle Paul struggled with government officials and religious leaders. But Paul is saying, I want you to realize that behind the people who frustrate you is an invisible enemy who is banking on the fact that you will forget he is there. And he hides behind people you can see, hoping you will never realize that he's actually the one influencing a lot of the things that are happening, not only in our lives, but in our families and in our nation. Paul says we are fighting dark spiritual forces who live to discourage us and divide us and divert our attention, distract us, who plant seeds of jealousy and envy and anger because their goal is that we lose our peace of mind. If we're Christians, they can't take our souls, but they can so neutralize us, so discourage us, we just feel like giving up all hope. Paul says we are fighting a supernatural enemy that has a greater impact on our daily lives than we think. And he describes the enemy. He says they're personal. He calls them rulers. He says they're powerful. He calls them principalities and powers. There is an invisible, highly organized hierarchy of evil beings who do the bidding of their master. Powers far beyond mine and yours. He calls them evil because they delight in death. Their goal is to kill steal and destroy. Maybe you've heard the words of that gospel track, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Paul says that the devil hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. He's targeting you. He is targeting your children. He is targeting your grandchildren. And his goal is to steal your joy and steal your peace and steal your family and leave you so hopeless you just give up. He wants you to believe he's running the show. He's calling the shots. He toys with our emotions just like we're on a puppet on a string. Satan has no conscience, no compassion, no remorse, no morals. He feeds on pain and anguish and filth. There's nothing redeemable in him. Paul says they're spiritual. All this is happening, he says, in the heavenlies, in the heavenly places, in the realm of spiritual reality. There is a spirit world surrounding us that we're not aware of because we can't see it. And Satan's intent is to keep us from thinking about it. And the forces of evil and the forces of light are doing combat there in that place. Satan tries to prevent you from taking any knowledge of that place seriously. So he distracts us with people and things that we can see and hear. And Paul says, those are the enemies you're up against. And this is really strange to some of us. I sat in a Sunday school class years ago at my parents' church in Oklahoma, a Southern Baptist church, good Bible-believing church, and we were reading some passage like this, and a guy sitting in the circle says, do any of you guys really believe this stuff? It reminded me of a boxer who was just really getting badly beaten in the, in the boxing ring. And uh, between rounds, he went over and leaned over the ring to his trainer and said, throw in the towel. They're killing me. And his trainer looks up and says, nobody's hitting you. Nobody's hurting you. Nobody's going after you. And the boxer said, well, if that's the case, would you keep an eye on that referee because somebody's hitting me? <laughs> 
Here's my question. Who's hitting us? How do you explain the world we live in without the existence of a personal set of evil forces? How do you explain 9-11? How do you explain the killing of millions of Jews in World War II in the very country that launched the Reformation, the rediscovery of justification by faith? How do you explain one school shooting after another? How do you explain gang-pressing young children in Africa, feeding them drugs until they're high, putting weapons in their hands, and sending little boys and girls out to fight? How do you explain trafficking women and children for the sex industry? How do you explain that when the Russians left Afghanistan, they left 10 million landmines on the ground all over that country. The Taliban came in and marched children through the fields to explode the landmines. How do you explain that kind of evil? How do you explain cruelty to children? How do you explain exploiting women in pornography? And how do you explain the grip, the death grip that porn has on many of us in this room? How do you explain that? How do you explain greed and suicide? and abortion, and scandals at the highest reaches of government and business? How do you explain substance abuse? How do you explain cancer in little children? Why can't we solve our basic problems as a country? Why do we keep repeating the same problems generation after generation? Why can't we understand ourselves? You will never understand the world we live in without understanding there are supernatural forces that are stronger and smarter than we are. And if the Bible is true, and it is, we can never defeat the darkness in our own hearts and our own strength. We're in over our head unless God helps us. Spiritual warfare must be done in God's way. So we struggle against a supernatural enemy who primarily operates with schemes. That's what he says in verse 11. Sometimes it's translated wiles, methods, strategies. The devil has an arsenal of weapons he has been working with and cultivating for thousands and thousands of years. Two teams are going to fight in the Super Bowl this, uh, this, this evening have been spending scores of hours watching film of each other. Why do, they do, why do they do that? Well, they want to they discover the weaknesses of the other team, the Bengals and the Rams. What are the, and what are their tendencies when they're under pressure? Because if they, they can discover those weaknesses, they can exploit them. And we have an enemy who has been watching our game films for thousands of years. And he's been watching you since conception. He was there when you were a child and things happened to you as a child that still affect you today. He's been watching. He knows it all. He's been watching the game. He sees the sin patterns in our life that just seem unbreakable. He knows what frustrates you. He knows what wears you down. And if all this sounds bleak, I've got good news for you. We also have access to game films. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.11, we are not ignorant of the devil's devices. We have a coach who knows our opponent's weaknesses, and he's told us. C.S. Lewis wrote a book one time called The Screwtape Letters, 
And it's a, it's a, it's a, a letter of, it's, it's a book of letters written from a senior demon to a junior demon, how Satan operates. And in that book, he says, there are two mistakes that we make, two errors that we fall in with regard to Satan and demons and the demonic. He says we can underestimate their strength or we can overestimate their strength. He says we can have an unhealthy interest in, in them. We can ascribe all evil uh, to them, too much power to them because they're not all powerful. Paul says over and over, you can stand in the mighty power of God. You can stand. There's an armor, armor of God that he's put at your, at your disposal that will allow you to withstand all of the devil's schemes, even on the days of evil, even when flaming arrows are flying at you. He's not all powerful. Sometimes we overestimate, sometimes we underestimate. In fact, truth be known, there's probably some of us in here just don't believe in the devil unless we see someone turn green, their head goes all the way around, they're vomiting, like in the exorcism. Lewis says the demons are equally pleased with either one. You see, many Christians attribute everything to the devil. You can't find a parking space at the mall. The devil after me got an anger problem, have lust problems, the devil. Or it may be the way you were raised. It may be some chemical imbalance in your body. It might just be old-fashioned selfishness. Maybe you're angry because you need to forgive someone and you refuse to do that up until now. Maybe a moral issue with you may not be a demonic issue. But I think many Christians simply forget that the devil doesn't wear a red suit and with pitchfork and horns because the Bible says he comes like an angel of light to us, 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15. He almost always is unseen. Both errors are equally pleasing to the powers of darkness. I wonder, are you falling in one of those errors? John White is a Christian psychologist. He's written a number of books, very helpful books, and he tells us how the devil operates. If you were to go to this piano and lift the cover and bend down and sing across the strings, the string that is tuned to your voice would begin to vibrate. Did you know that? Without even touching it. Now, most of us don't have any clue what note we're singing. We're at a perfect pitch. But whatever you sing, there is a string here that is attuned to the very note that you're singing and begins to vibrate. And what the devil does is he plays on strings in our life, sins in our life, tendencies in our life that are already there which is why Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. You'll give the devil a foothold in your life. Your anger is already there. The devil just pushes it. That's why 1 Timothy 3 says, don't let a new Christian become an elder in the church. Why? Because they'll fall into the condemnation of the devil. The devil knows exactly what strings in your life will vibrate if he speaks on them. Do you? Do you know what strings are there? It's called the devil, diablos, which means to lie, to slander. It's the main way he works. He is a liar. The devil deceives us in one of two ways. He tempts us and he accuses us. He tempts us to sin and then when we sin, then he kicks us. He tempts us to have, have too high a view of ourselves so that we do things we shouldn't. And he accuses us to have, so that we have too low a view of ourselves, we do things we shouldn't, both ways work. He tempts us to minimize God's holiness and plays up God's love, 
or he accuses us by minimizing God's love and playing up God's holiness. Just uses deception. He deceived Adam and Eve. Can you imagine how hard it must have been for the devil to get Adam and Eve to sin? They're walking with God all the time, and it's no, nothing but joy and love. It's not boring. They're creating. They're naming. They're exploring. They have one another. How hard must it have been? How does the devil do it? He raises the question of the goodness of God the same way he does with you and me. Not only is God good, but is he good to me? He plants the lies. Why does he do it? To destroy them. Makes this truth and falsehood. How does he tempt us today? Back in the 1600s, a man by the name of Thomas Brooks, a pastor, a Puritan, wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he gives like 50 or 60 different ways the devil tempts us. Let me give you six that he mentions. Number one, he shows us the bait and hides the hook. Any fishermen here? You guys know fish? He, show, yeah, your hands. he shows us the bait and hides the hook. He gets you to look at short-term pleasure, short-term relief, and hides the long-term misery. And we all know about that one. Number two, he gets you to rationalize sin as virtue. I'm not greedy. I'm just thrifty. I'm not nosy. I'm just concerned. I don't have a drinking problem. I'm just sociable. I'm not cruel. I just tell the truth. Number three, he shows us the sins of Christian leaders. Well, if he can't live up to it, how in the world could I possibly live up to it? It's the whole thing's a joke. Number four, he overshadows the mercies of God. God will forgive you. It's his job. Number five, he makes, makes us bitter over suffering. I'm so tired. Nobody knows how hard I work. I deserve this. Number six, he shows Christians how many bad people just seem to have great lives. And we think, well, I guess walking with God doesn't pay off. And then he accuses us. And Brooks mentions oh, dozens and dozens of ways. Let me just mention four. He accuses us by causing us to look more at our sin than at our Savior. We think, what a miserable excuse for a Christian I am. I'm a failure. Number two, he causes us to obsess over past sins that cannot be undone. Number three, he makes Christians think that troubles, the troubles we're going through, must be punishment. God must be angry at me. And number four, he makes us think a Christian could not possibly have this many inner struggles. So we think, well, I think, well, maybe I'm not a Christian. Surely a Christian couldn't have these many problems. You recognize any of this? He's playing you. He knows what particular devices, what buttons to push, what strings to vibrate. And those are just some of the flaming arrows that he throws at us. But he's patient. He's willing to wait years to spring a trap on you that will cause maximum shame to the name of Jesus. He's putting in place right now that. And he knows his time is short because he can read the Bible. And he knows the return of Christ is near. He knows the signs of the, of the time. So he's increasingly enraged. We wrestle with an enemy who deceives us in order to neutralize, destroy our joy, and who's more powerful than we are. Last point, stand. In fact, Paul says it four times. 
Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm, stand therefore. Every piece of armor that we're going to talk about in this series over the next few weeks, if we look at each piece, is designed to protect some part of us. It's a God-given resource. And so I hope that you'll be a part of this series. But if I can sum up right now what the armor of God is that we're told to put on, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. What What two things does Satan do? He tempts us and he accuses us. He emphasizes God's holiness and God's wrath and minimizes God's love so that we hate ourselves or he overblows God's love and minimizes God's holiness so we think everything is okay. He either crushes us with guilt and fear or he says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You're, you're okay. But if you believe the gospel that Jesus died on the cross and took your sin and your guilt and your shame and, when, and he rose from the dead and when you believe in him, your guilt is gone. You are all forgiven, and his righteousness, all the good that he did that's counted to your account, you realize two things. Number one, I'm a whole lot worse sinner than I thought I was. And number two, I'm a whole lot more loved than I ever dared dream. My sin put Jesus on the cross, but I could not be more loved and forgiven and cherished. So it means when I'm tempted, I can say, Jesus, this killed Jesus. This, what I'm being tempted to say or, or do or think, it killed Jesus. And when I feel accused and feel like a failure, I can say, I am so accepted. I am so loved. The armor of God is the gospel. And that is what defeats the evil one. And that is what he has given to us. Thomas Brooks that I mentioned a, a moment ago said this. This is 400 years old. The remedy for your sin is to look upon all your sins as charged to the account of Christ. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. A wife may say to the bill collector, if I owe you anything, go to my husband. So may the believer say to justice or the devil, if I owe you anything, go to my Christ who has underwritten me fully. I must not sit down discouraged under the fear of those debts that Christ to the uttermost penny has satisfied. The remedy for this accusation is to solemnly consider that believers must repent of their being discouraged by their sins. God did not give you a new heart to have it ripped in two by either guilt and shame or discouragement. So my pastor friend that I mentioned looks at me and he says, I'm I'm, I'm as highly, I have a terminal degree, I have a great family, I have a good church, this should be easy. I'm a Christian, what's wrong with me? I'll tell you what I said to him. Larry, I'll tell you what's wrong with you. You're human. And God loves your humanity. And you think you're the only one fighting a battle. The fact is, everybody fights a battle on some front. And I think you're going to win in your fight with your weight. I think you're going to win it. I mean, in heaven, (laughs) 
won't be a problem. And I predicted before heaven, as you learn another way of eating, as you learn to submit to the Holy Spirit, as you learn to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might, as you learn to believe the gospel, as you learn to lean on brothers and sisters who can help you discover why this is such a battle for you, I think you're going to win this. And tears begin rolling down his cheeks. You've just got a little bit of hope. This is how we win the battles. And I'll say the same thing to you. Everybody in this room thinks you're the only one fighting a battle on some front. But if you learn to use your spiritual weapons, you're going to win. The devil will not have the final word in your life. Can I hear an amen? God will soon crush Satan under your feet, says Romans 16. He's a powerful raging lion, but you have a champion who has secured your victory because Christ defeated him on the cross. Listen to Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities that we talked about, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Tony Evans says, we do not fight for victory, we fight from victory. You're going to win. As you learn to put on the armor of God, as you learn to believe the gospel, as you get the help of brothers and sisters, as you pray the scriptures, as you lean into the strength of God, it may take a while, but you're going to win. And so here's the last question. What side of this battle are you on? You say, well, the devil doesn't bother me. He's already got you. You know, there's only one thing worse than having the devil as your enemy. That's having God as your enemy. Because Paul, one of the most religious people who ever lived, said, before I came to Christ, I was the enemy of God. It's not our worst sins. It's our goodness that sometimes stands between us and God that condemns us. So which side of the battle are you going to be on? And I'm so grateful that we have a champion who has fought the battle for us, himself used the armor of God in his struggles with the evil one and shows us how we can. So uh, when you leave it today, welcome to the fight. Welcome to the battle. Now you know what to do, at least one thing to do, believe the gospel. Robin Myrick is uh, part of our church, and she is headed on a mission trip. So Robin, come on up, and we want to pray for you before we dismiss this morning. So just tell us where you're going and what you think you might be doing, how long you'll be gone. Um, I'm going to San Luis Potosi, probably just butcher that, in Mexico. Um, Daniel Hegel, who we've supported his family, uh, is a missionary there and invited me to come. And Daniel is just um, asking me to work with children who are learning English, um, conversational English, and um, that's something I can do. I can speak English, so I'm a little bit confident in that. <laughs> that's about it. Um, and I'm going to be there uh, for about three weeks, um, leaving on Thursday. Okay. Uh, yeah, this Thursday, and coming back um, March 10th, I believe, if everything goes the way we plan. Uh, God knows what's going to happen. 
um, anyway, I would just really appreciate prayer because this is um, this is a miracle because I'm a very fearful person. So just getting off my couch and you know going into town is a trip for me. So um, this will be a new experience, and I'm just excited to see what God's going to do. If you've ever dealt with fear in your life, I want to ask you to get up and come stand around Robin and join me in praying. If you've ever dealt with fear in your life, just come on. If that's ever been an issue for you. Dave Ramali, I've not asked you before, but would you pray for Robin right now on this trip? Bow with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Robin, for her life, and for what the work that you're doing uh, in her right now. We just thank you for uh, this step of faith that she's taking, and uh, just help her to keep her eyes on you. Uh, we just thank you that, that she has said, has said yes and that she's going to be able to go see the Eagles and work with them and work with the kids for, for three weeks. What a blessing that will be. And I just pray that you would use this in, in her life to strengthen her, to strengthen her faith, and to give her boldness, Lord. And for us, we just pray that we would uh, relate and that we would uh, just pray that you would take away the fear that she's uh, sensing and that you would use her in a special way. And just thank you that she has said yes. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Folks, I hope you, have a, hope you have a great week. There'll be folks here at the front if we can pray for you about anything. We would love to do that. God bless you. See you next week.